0: Hey everyone, Marshall here. I hope your summer has been going great. Today I've decided to take a road trip to a nearby cave. It's like a little bit cold down here, but there are so many great sights: stalagmites, stalactites. Um, I forget which ones go up and which ones go down. But a- anyway, it's not important. As we go through the cave, we're going to be sharing some of Tumble's previous spelunking adventures. At- oh, oh, is that a bat? It looks like our first episode up is going to be the journey to the Bat Cave.
1: Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall.
0: Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
1: Today we're headed to the Cave.
0: Wait, you mean the place where Batman and Robin hang out waiting for calls about crimes in Gotham City?
1: No, it's way cooler than that. We're going on a field trip to the biggest bat colony in the entire world, where we'll meet a bat biologist and find out how bats learn to be bats. One morning this summer, I got up to watch the sunrise on an old ranch outside of San Antonio, Texas. But there was one element of the sunrise you can't see or hear anywhere else in the world. That sound
2: is wind passing
1: over millions of bat wings.
2: So this is the beginning of when the bats start to rain down in the morning. That's real-life batwoman slash bat biologist Jessica Dreyer. I met her around 6
1: a.m. near the entrance to Bracken Cave, which is home to 15 million Mexican free-tailed bats.
0: Wait, 15 million bats?
2: Yeah, it's the largest concentration of mammals on the planet. When you are standing by the cave and you look up into the sky, pretty much as far as you can see upwards, you'll just see these little dots appear out of the sky and they'll just drop straight down. And they've been clocked at about 40 miles an hour dropping into the cave. Uh, And so, I mean, literally thousands of bats will be raining down over you. Coming back into the cave, and it is one of the most cool otherworldly experiences you'll ever have.
1: It was like being in some sort of secret bat world, but what made it even more special was that this huge cloud of bats was made up
2: only of mothers and their babies.
0: Whoa, it's a big mom's group. <laughs>
2: So we're approaching that point right now where the sun is starting to rise and more bats are starting to come in from a night of feeding. Are we going to get pooped on? Yeah, yeah. If you're standing close enough to the cave, yes, you will get some rain, some urine rain, and some poop landing on your head.
0: (laughs) I hope you brought your bat raincoat, or should I say poop coat.
1: I actually don't have one.
2: (laughs) This is so... Incredibly amazing. Where else can you see this kind of thing? Not many places in the world. And, you know, it doesn't seem to matter how many times you've seen it. It always blows your mind.
1: Jessica's seen it a lot. All summer, she's been camping outside the cave. And every night, she's up between 2 a.m. and 9 a.m. catching bats. And that's what I've come to see.
0: Wait, wait, catching bats? Just like like grabbing them out of the air? Like, how and why?
2: Let's talk about why first. The point of this whole project that I'm working on is to figure out what the transition looks like when a baby bat goes from drinking only its mother's milk to learning how to catch its own bugs and then finally feeding itself entirely on bugs that it catches itself.
1: In other words, she's trying to figure out how bat babies get weaned from their mommies.
0: That's something we do as human babies, except, you know, we don't start eating bugs. It's usually fruit or something. (laughs) Sometimes avocado.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but so while this is a delightful time for humans to spread, you know, food all over their faces, this is actually one of the most
2: difficult times in a young bat's life. So you're a young bat, you're still growing, Um, you're trying to figure out how to fly, how to echolocate, how to catch bugs. All of this is happening at the same time and your milk supplies that you're getting fed are decreasing. And so you are expending a ton of energy trying to learn how to be a bat and the energy that's coming in is decreasing.
1: So Jessica's goal is to figure out how that process actually works. And to
2: do that, she has to catch a lot of bats. So we're approaching the mouth of the cave right now. It's a quick hike from the viewing area where I
1: met Jessica to the bat catching spot.
2: And we really just stand right in front of the the opening of the cave, right in the middle, because the bats, when they're dropping down into the cave uh, from the sky, they sort of aim for the, the middle top of the cave, and so that's where the most bats are and it gives us our best chance of catching them. So I'm with my technician, his name is Harry, and he has the butterfly net, and so he's just going to go ahead and stick the butterfly net straight up into the air, and he doesn't even have to move it.
0: Wait, they, they catch bats with a butterfly net, like there's not a special bat net?
2: For the bats, it's just this circle floating in the air and they fly right into it. <laughs> <laughs> he's already caught a bat and it's been about a split second that he's had the net in the air. So he just reaches in with his hand uh, and he's wearing a a baseball glove or a golf glove. Uh, It's just a thin leather glove to protect himself from bat bites. And you might've heard that on the mic, he just dropped the bat into one of the little paper bags that I'm holding open for him. And so I fold the paper bag over, I close it up with a clothespin and I write the time of capture on the bag. And so it is 6.52.
0: So there are bat bags. Can you get those at Target?
2: You actually can! They're
1: like regular brown paper lunch bags, the kind you would bring to school. (laughs) And then, here's the thing, after they catch the bats, they put them in a little cooler.
0: It's like, this one's for lunch, this one's for the bats.
2: Yeah. There's no ice, it's just to carry the bats. Uh, He's already got, he just dropped the second bat into the bag, 653. So he's got the net back up in the air and he's already caught a third bat. So
1: as I watched from about 50 yards away, I could see Jessica and Harry standing in the swarm of bats, raising and lowering the net like they're picking apples or something.
2: (laughs) All right, so we have 10 bats. So we are just gonna go ahead and carry our cooler with our bags full of bats back up to the top of the sinkhole so that we can work on our data collection. The data collection is the time-consuming part. To do that, we walked
1: back with the cooler to a small clearing where there's a little outdoor lab.
2: Now we just we have this table set up with all of our equipment on it and this is where we process the bats.
0: So what exactly does it mean to process a bat? Like they have to fill out a form and make sure they get their social security number right?
2: <laughs> no,
1: it means that they're going to go through a series of steps to collect information about each bat. It starts with Harry weighing them while they're still inside the
2: lunch bag. And so once he's done, I just go ahead and pull out the bat. And so now I've got a little juvenile male bat in my hand. And if you put your two thumbs next to each other, that's about how big the body of the bat is. Oh my God, It's so amazing. <laughs> wow, he's got
1: his wings all spread out and you can see the membranes. Oh,
2: and he's so tiny. And they only weigh I don't know, like 10, 12 grams, which is about the weight of two quarters. So the next time you go to the dollar store and you're holding 50 cents, that's about how much one of these bats weighs.
0: So they're really little tiny guys.
2: Yeah, but really feisty. As we talked,
1: the bat chomped down on Jessica's gloves with its tiny sharp teeth, and it
2: started screaming at her. And that's this little guy making those squeaking noises.
0: So that's what a bat sounds like when it's trying to squirm out of your grasp.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly what it sounds like. And I
1: have to say, bats are a lot different up close than I'd imagined.
2: They're actually kind of cute. To me, they look like little puppies and they've got these huge ears and these little wrinkly lips and these little whiskers. <laughs> and so one of my favorite things to do is to bring people out to actually see bats up close because a lot of times it'll change the way that they feel about bats, which um, is one of the most rewarding aspects of this work for me. Once we're finished
1: ooing and eyeing over the adorable baby bat, Jessica got to work. First, she had to figure out how old the bat was by measuring the distance between two joint bones in its wing.
2: I've got a microscope here that, oddly enough, I actually backlight with my cell phone (laughs) because that's the best way to see the joint and I measure the gap through the microscope. She also
1: drew blood from the tail and collected pellets of poop that the bats left behind in the bag. And then there's the issue of bat milk. (laughs)
0: I always love the job of a scientist.
1: (laughs) I know. (laughs) Bat milk
2: is actually really difficult to get. (laughs)
0: I'm sure. I'm sure it is.
2: I mean, it really is like milking a cow or any other animal. It's just that they're so tiny. What was it like the first time you milked a bat? (laughs) Very difficult. (laughs) Um, So it has tested my patience. But yeah, so the first time I ever milked a bat... um, We were catching them earlier in the night, and so they hadn't really produced a lot of milk yet. And so I wasn't sure if I was doing it wrong or if the bats just didn't have milk. And so the first one that I was able to successfully milk, like, I don't, we, I think, like, threw our hands up into the air and, like, jumped up and down because we were so excited that it finally worked.
0: I can imagine not too many people have successfully milked a bat. Like, probably not enough to make cheese, even.
2: Yeah,
1: I think artisanal bat cheese is not a thing for a good reason.
0: (laughs) Be like a tiny little pellet. Yeah.
1: I should also say that you really shouldn't try to catch a bat yourself because there's definitely a risk of rabies.
0: Noted. So what does Jessica do with all these bat fluids and measurements?
1: She uses them for a little bit of science detective work to figure out what the bats have been eating.
2: So I'm going to be doing stable isotope analysis from the milk samples and then also from insect samples.
1: Stable isotope analysis is a technique that reveals a unique chemical fingerprint in bat food. Jessica's challenge is to find those fingerprints within samples of blood and the pellets of poop from the babies. Once she does that, she can track how the bat's diet changes from milk to insects, over the course of the summer.
0: So that's really cool, but why is it important to know how bats are weaned?
2: One of the reasons is simply that we don't know. Um, bats are, are pretty understudied up till now, and so there's a lot of really basic questions that we just don't know about bats. So that in itself um, is enough to drive me to ask a question, but it's more than that.
1: What Jessica learns could be really important for conservation meaning how we protect animal species and their environment.
2: Understanding the most stressful periods with the highest mortality rates are really important. I guess a classic example of that is um, our protection strategies with sea turtles. We often will put cages over nests of sea turtle eggs because it's an easy thing that we can do to help increase sea turtle survivorship. And so it's, it's kind of the same idea there. We want to make sure we know as much as possible about their life history so that we can make the best decisions we can.
0: So I guess we want to do what we can to make sure that more adorable animal babies survive to become even cuter adults, so that they can have another generation of even cuter animal babies.
1: It's a circle of life. (laughs) It's a circle of cuteness. (laughs) So a huge part of making that happen is protecting animal habitat. Jessica's able to do her research because a group called Bat Conservation International bought the land that the bat cave is on in order to preserve it.
0: Bat conservationists, the real life bat people.
1: And really, anyone could grow up to be a real bat person. It's not just for superheroes.
2: You know, five years ago, I never, ever would have guessed that this is what I would have been doing. I get to be right next to the largest group of of mammals in the whole world and that's not a lot of people get to do that and get the privilege to study them so I feel extremely fortunate that that I'm the kid that gets to do this
0: (laughs) If you were a bat person what would you study? Draw us a picture or send us a recording Send it to tumblepodcast at gmail.com or use the contact form on our website
1: We can't wait to hear your bat adventures
0: I hope you liked learning about the Bat Caves because we have some more bat-filled fun for you. Up next is a very special bonus episode, Inside the Bat Cave.
1: Hi, I'm Lindsay.
0: And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
1: We have a different kind of show for you today. We're going to take you behind the scenes of Tumble and share one of our favorite scientist interviews.
0: In every episode, we tell a story with the help of scientists. That means that we do lots of interviews, but you usually just hear short clips of them.
1: Those clips come from long conversations with scientists. And I wanted to share more of the fascinating science that doesn't always make it into the show. So I started making these bonus interview shows for all of our Patreon members.
0: Today we're sharing the interview with bat biologist Jessica Dreyer from The Journey to the Bat Cave. We really recommend listening to that episode if you haven't already. It's about how Jessica is discovering how bats learn to be bats at the biggest bat colony in the world.
1: Bracken Cave is just outside San Antonio, Texas, and it's home to around 15 million bats, the most mammals you'll find in one place on Earth. In this part of our interview, I start by asking Jessica about the cave itself.
2: What makes it so unique, and like, why is it here of all places? That's a good question. So the cave itself was formed by water. And so there used to be shallow seas here. And over time, water has just carved out this cave. And it's here just because of the geology. And uh, we don't completely understand yet what makes bats choose the caves that they that they do. But the bats have been using this cave for thousands of years. And um, The guano in that cave is more than 75 feet deep and so there's there's a lot of guano and a lot of bats and um the act the actual environment of the cave is really really interesting and uh so typically when you walk into a cave um maybe not typically but oftentimes you'll see those stalactites and stalagmites and really cool rock formations but in this cave because the bats have been in there so long, urinating and defecating and spreading their body oils everywhere that all of those formations are gone. They've actually just worn away um, from all of those different fluids from the bats. So it kind of looks like what you might imagine the moon to look like. Uh, It has this, the guano turns into this sandy, powdery substance because uh, there's beetles in there that eat bat guano and break it down. and so it feels like you're walking through sand when you're in there, and the ceilings and the walls are just jam-packed with, with bats, and they're flying around. Um, like when I go into a cave, I have to wear a full-face respirator that filters out the ammonia and uh, also the the fungal spores and the feces, and uh, I wear you know a protective helmet and long sleeves and pants and boots just to protect myself from the gases and the beetles and the, the poop and pee that is constantly raining down on your head. So it's, it's an alien environment in there, but it's a really cool experience. Yeah, so you've been down there? I have, yeah, I uh, went down there to look and see if there were any babies left sort of late in the season so that I would have a, a reference to know when weaning was you know, starting and when the babies were all starting to fly. And how big is the cave for, like, you know, 15 million bats? Yeah, smaller than you would think. So this cave extends about 650 feet back, and it's basically just one oval-shaped chamber. And there's bats all over, like, from front to back on the ceilings and the walls, and they are able to pack in really really tightly so for the adults you can find between 200 and 500 adults in uh in like a square foot what Yeah, That is dense. It's super dense because they'll, you know, the surface is uneven, so they'll get in all the little cracks and crevices, and they'll actually roost on top of each other. And um, the little babies, because when the babies come out, they're a lot smaller than the adults, and um, those can be packed in as densely as 4,000 or 5,000 per square meter. What? It's like they're like the material of the cave roof, like... Yeah, all you see is just swaths of fur or naked pink babies, and it's really, really neat because the adults, um, the females will go and they'll stick their babies in these nursery areas of the cave, so all the babies are together, and that helps keep them warm, Um, and also helps probably keep the females from going insane from (laughs) hungry babies. Um, But yeah, so you'll just see, you know, this gigantic area of pink naked babies. It's wild. Wow. And so what makes bracken a maternity cave or like well known for that? So bracken, we call a maternity colony because um, this species is migratory. And so they spend the winters down in Mexico and Central America. When they come back, uh, the males and the females kind of split up and the females will go to these caves and form maternity colonies that are just completely or mostly formed of females and they'll all give birth right around the same time within a couple of weeks of each other in mid-June early June Um, and that's that's why we call them maternity colonies because it's totally composed of females and their babies and then the males go hang out in smaller bachelor colonies. Um, And how do the how do the
1: bats give birth? just it's live birth right
2: yeah yeah so they're mammals so they give live birth um they actually so normally bats hang upside down right like by their feet and you guys did an episode on that Um, but when they give birth they actually turn the other way and they hang by their thumbs and then you know the baby will pop out and they'll catch it in their uropatagium which is that membrane that stretches between their bottom legs and so they'll kind of catch it and scoop it up with their uropatagium, and the baby will just cling on to the mother's body, um, and they're able to do that, I mean, immediately after birth, they're able to grab hold and, and hang on to the mother pretty well. Do people keep bats as pets? No, they would make terrible pets. You know, they're nocturnal, and they poop a lot, and you'd have to feed them insects all the time, like tons of insects. and they would fly around your house and just make a mess, and so I think they would make horrible pets. But there are people that do uh, wildlife rehabilitation that will rehabilitate bats, which is if you, you know, YouTube videos of baby fruit bats being coddled up in little
1: blankies, like we saw last night when we Googled the words cute bats.
2: Exactly, and their (laughs) cheeks are full of fruit, and yes, they're adorable.
0: All right, those bats are awesome. The cave has so many incredible things, even some fossils. Let's learn about some intrepid explorers who do some fossil hunting of their own. Up next is the Cave of the Underground Astronauts. Hi, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
1: Today, we're climbing deep into a cave to meet three underground astronauts.
0: Underground astronauts, like they're in hiding or something?
1: <laughs> no, they're archaeologists on an expedition to find fossils from one of our ancient relatives. But like astronauts in space, they have some pretty special talents and a love of adventure.
3: There we go. Can you hear us? Yes, I can. Oh, great. Uh, hi, I'm Marina and Becca. <laughs> My name's Becca, and we have Kenny here <laughs> as well.
4: Yeah.
1: I'm sitting at my desk talking over Skype to Marina Elliott, Becca Pichotto, and Kenny Molipanye. They're part of a team of archaeologists working in South Africa. But it's kind of an unusual interview setup. They're in a cave 30 meters underground. Whoa, that's like 100 feet.
4: Sorry, Lindsay, give us a second while we try to get ourselves into a place in the cave that's actually reasonably comfortable and you can see
3: us.
4: (laughs) All right, the challenges of, you know, doing interviews from underground.
0: So um, how do you get Skype in a cave? Is there just like a desktop in there when they got in?
3: It's a a lot of um, wiring and then Wi-Fi.
1: Becca, Marina, and Kenny squeezed together to fit into the screen. They were wearing hard hats with headlamps and pants with reflective tape. They were sitting in what's called the D Naledi Chamber of the Rising Star Cave System, about 50 miles from Johannesburg. It's the site of a major discovery in the history of humankind. Homo Naledi. Here's Becca.
3: Homo Naledi is a... Early hominid. We don't know if it's an ancestor or probably more like a cousin. And it's about 250,000 years old. So far, it's only been found in this one cave system in South Africa.
1: Hominid is the name of the group of species that includes modern humans and our extinct relatives, like Neanderthals. The caves in this part of South Africa have been a hotbed of hominid discovery for the past hundred years. Homo naledi was one of the biggest finds ever. They found not just one specimen or one body, but 15.
0: So, how did they find this? Was there like a treasure map and a pirate going, like, if you look here, you'll find my buried treasure <laughs> of a bunch of monkey bones?
1: <laughs> well, it didn't happen quite like that. Back in 2013, Two cavers were exploring the cave system when they found a tiny gap in the cave wall. They squeezed through it into an open chamber, and with the light from their headlamps, they saw bones literally scattered across the surface of the floor.
0: Wow, but if people had been exploring caves in the area for a hundred years, how did they miss these fossils
1: just laying out in the open? Well, to say it's hard to get to the Dinaletti chamber would be a total understatement. I'll let Kenny describe how she, Becca, and Marina get there every day.
5: Our first obstacle is the Superman's crawl. We would get down on our bellies and just wiggle our way through this tunnel.
0: Oh boy. (laughs) That sounds like... Ugh, I couldn't do that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's lots of small spaces. Superman's crawl is less than 10 inches high. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And that's just the beginning. Next comes a climb up a jagged rock wall.
5: And then you climb up Dragon's Back, jump over Leap of Faith, which is a meter um, distance leap from one point to the next point.
0: (laughs) Dragon's Back, Leap of Faith. My goodness. (laughs) This just sounds like one of the most super intense things a person can do.
5: And then we enter into what I call the crystal chandelier chamber, <laughs> where you like unclip your harness and sort of brace yourself for facing the chute.
1: This is the gut-clenching part, the chute. It's what kept Letty chamber a secret for hundreds of thousands of years. It's
5: literally a crack in the wall. And the chute has an 18 centimeter pinch point, which is where you hold your breath, say a little prayer, and squeeze through. And then, yeah, then you make it into the chamber, the fossil chamber.
0: Hold on, did she say 18 centimeters?
5: Yes, that's seven inches.
0: That's like the size of two and a half Hot Wheels cars laid end to end. I love that
1: that's your unit of measurement. Isn't
0: that everybody's unit of measurement? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, so your entire body has to fit through the space of two and a half Hot Wheels cars.
0: Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's- I can't do that. (laughs) What I really can't imagine, actually, is how someone thought to find this cave.
1: (laughs) It's one of those happy accident kind of things. If the cavers hadn't been tiny people, too, they never would have found it. But getting there isn't the only challenge. Becca described the other creatures that they encountered on their way to work that morning.
3: There were six or seven bats that we sort of woke up, I suppose, and they were... Trying very hard to figure out which way they should go to get out of our way.
0: Not only have I been woken up early, but now I have to sit in traffic, too.
1: (laughs) What a miserable way to start a bat night. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, once the excavators get down there, they work up to eight hours.
0: So, okay, like, main question, do they get bathroom breaks?
3: You know, if you decide while you're underground that you need to use the restroom, you have to wait till you get above ground to do that. So you have to plan ahead a little, uh, anticipate your needs so that you can get out through that 18 centimeter gap and through the Superman crawl and everything else.
0: Okay. So like crawling through tiny cracks in the wall to look at ancient bones is like pretty unusual job. So how do you get it?
1: Well, you answer a Facebook ad to be an underground astronaut. Here's how Kenny described finding the gig.
5: I I was procrastinating, um, just trolling around Facebook and Instagram, and here was this ad, and I was like, I'm going to take it.
0: So, like, what did the ad say?
5: Well, first
1: of all, you need to be small enough to fit through that 18-centimeter hole in a wall.
0: (laughs) First thing was,
1: can you fit through a small hole? (laughs) So you don't just need the body, you need the brains, too. The expedition needed people with skills in excavating fossils and studying them. Here's Marina.
4: Um, You needed to be able to work well in a small team, not be claustrophobic, not be scared of heights, be willing to, you know, fly to South Africa for a month without pay and work underground in a potentially dangerous <laughs> environment.
0: I mean, who wouldn't sign up to work in a dangerous environment for no pay? You'd have to be crazy not to do it.
5: Yeah, I just read adventure and I was like, yep, we're sold. <laughs>
0: So if you love adventure and don't mind small enclosed spaces, like really, really small enclosed spaces, being an underground astronaut would be like a dream job.
1: Yeah, you get the chance to be part of a huge discovery in early human history. On the original expedition in 2013, Marina and Becca helped collect the first bones of Homo naledi that had ever been studied.
4: We excavated just one unit, which was basically 80 centimeters by 80 centimeters by 20 centimeters deep. We took some material off the surface, but all told, we ended up with about 1,500 fossil fragments.
0: Wow, that's incredible, like having a 1,500-piece puzzle with no photo on the box.
4: Yeah, and it was a
1: species that no one had ever seen before.
0: So definitely no photo on the box.
1: (laughs) Scientists carefully constructed 15 skeletons from the 1,500 fossil pieces. Then they were able to imagine what Homo naledi would have looked like while they were alive. Becca kind of painted a picture for
3: me. If you were to see a Homo naledi on the street, you would not think that it looked a lot like us
1: but it still has a lot in common with humans.
3: It walked on two feet. Its feet, in fact, look an awful lot like ours.
1: It was really short. Even the adults were under five feet tall.
3: On the reconstructions, the head of Homo naledi looks kind of small for its body.
1: Its brain was less than half the size of ours. Its forehead had a steep slope, kind of like an ape.
3: Um, And then it has shoulders that are um, a lot like a gibbon.
1: It also had long, curved fingers like a modern-day monkey.
3: That suggests to us that maybe Homo naledi was still doing lots of climbing in some way.
1: But the bones in its thumbs and wrists suggest that they could have used tools, which is like a really advanced skill for most species.
0: So what does this discovery tell us about humans?
1: Here's what Marina said.
4: You know, the human family tree is a lot bushier than, than people sometimes make it out to be. It's
1: not just a straight line from one ancient hominid species down to us.
4: At the 350 to 250,000 year point, certainly in Africa, you know, anatomically modern humans were already on the landscape.
0: So, like, we might have had some Homo naledis over for a party.
4: <laughs>
1: or we could have been fighting with them.
0: I mean, maybe both. <laughs> God, we're not inviting the naledis over again. <laughs> They always smash the table and steal all the fruit.
1: They're not even that good at using spoons! (laughs) Anyhow, scientists are starting to piece together what it would have looked like to have several hominid species on Earth at one time. The fact that we discovered Homo naledi so recently proves that there's still so much out there to find.
3: It's pretty exciting to find a bunch of bones that belong to a creature that hadn't been described before in science. Um, that, you know, nobody would ever seen before.
0: So if they were able to construct Homo naledi from that first expedition,
1: why do they keep coming back to the cave? That's a really good question. And here's Marina's answer.
4: I think it's really important not just to, you know, bring these initial fossils up and go, okay, we know all about Homo naledi because we really don't.
1: In other words, they want to know what more there is to discover. And there are definitely more fossils left.
4: We've already hit quite a lot of bone. So what are they hoping to find out? I mean, one of the, I think, the the big questions is why and how were they getting into this deep area of the cave?
1: The big mystery is how Homo Naledi ended up in a place that's nearly impossible to access.
0: Maybe maybe there was an easier entrance to the cave that, you know, closed up sometime in the last 250,000 years.
1: That's definitely a possibility that they're exploring. But how did so many bones end up there? There's no evidence that Homo naledi actually lived in the cave. No plants, no other bones of other animals, no nothing. Here's the best idea scientists have. The Dinaledi chamber was actually a burial ground.
4: We're still working on the hypothesis that Homo naledi was deliberately bringing its dead into this very difficult to access space. Um, you know, we've been at it for five years now and we haven't found a better explanation.
1: Many scientists don't believe that such a small brain species could have had funerals. That's part of the reason why Marina, Becca, Kenny, and others keep looking for more fossils that might give us more clues to the mystery.
4: You don't sort of find the answer, and that's the end of it, and you can kind of wash your hands and go home. Every time we come out, we find something new, and every time we find something new, we revise our, you know, ideas based on the new evidence.
0: So the whole funeral idea could be buried by the new fossils they find.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pun. Yeah, yeah. And that would be scientific progress, to have a completely new idea in maybe just a few years.
0: Okay, so how does one, not me, but someone, become an underground (laughs) astronaut? Just spend, like, a lot of time procrastinating on social media.
1: That's one aspect. The other part is to actually get out there and do stuff. All three women told me that they couldn't have predicted that they'll be sitting in a cave, digging up precious fossils, and doing podcast interviews. But they all had adventurous experiences that somehow led them there. Marina had this advice.
4: Try everything and anything. Try things you think you'll like. Try things you think you might not like. Do it safely, but be curious and get out there.
1: Kenny, do you have anything you want to add?
4: Adventure! (laughs)
0: So I might not be an underground astronaut, but I still feel like one in this cave. Um, Certainly, I'm not going to go through any, like, three-inch holes where I have to flatten my pelvis to get through. Oh, what's this? Looks like someone left a pickaxe lying around. To investigate, let's check out one more cave adventure. The Cave of the Neanderthal Tools.
1: Hi, I'm Lindsay.
0: And I'm Marshall. Welcome to Tumble, the show where we explore stories of science discovery.
1: Today, we're learning about what Neanderthals' tools can tell us.
0: Are these tools keeping us up with all the Neanderthal hot gossip?
1: (laughs) Not quite, but they can answer a lot of questions about how Neanderthals lived. We'll find out how archaeologists went from blowing up caves to making stone puzzles and discover the clues within tools.
0: I can't wait to find out, right after this. Before we get started, we've got a quick pronunciation guide.
1: This episode is about Neanderthals, which is spelled Neanderthals. Scientists pronounce it Neanderthals because it's German, and German's pronounce sounds differently than English. We're going to pronounce it like the scientists do, but you can say Neanderthals if you want.
0: Now that that's settled, let's get to the show.
1: Our listener, Leo, sent us a question about Neanderthals.
5: Hi, my name is Leo. I am seven years old. Can you name me some of the tools that Neanderthals made? Leo named a few of his own ideas. My guess of what some of the tools that they made is like hunting tools, like weapons and bow and arrows and stuff. Maybe not exactly bow and arrows, but like maybe like sharpened sticks.
0: I mean, everyone definitely has use for a sharpened stick, but how does the scientist really know what kind of tools they use?
5: Well, Leo
1: has some ideas for that, too.
5: I think that scientists can find out the real answer by looking for tools in sites or matching brain sizes to close relatives of Neanderthals that we know a lot about so that they can know that if they're really similar, they might have made the same tools.
0: Man, Leo has some really well-thought-out ideas.
1: I know. Now, let's ask our listeners. What kind of tools do you think Neanderthals used, and how do you think scientists would find out? To answer Leo's question, I called up Rebecca Ragsite. She's an archaeologist and wrote a book about everything scientists know about Neanderthals. I do a lot of thinking about the
6: past, and I love to write about what we know about prehistory and Neanderthals.
0: Wow, it sounds like she's the perfect person to tell us all about Neanderthal tools.
1: Indeed she is. And she starts all the way back when people were first beginning to discover them, around 200 years ago.
6: Lots of individual people across Europe and other places were sort of going into caves and sort of having a scratch about. They wanted to find some old bits of animals because people knew that you
1: could get old bones out of caves. These were the early archaeologists, people who were interested in fossils and had a taste for an adventure.
0: And apparently a taste for scratching about in caves.
6: Sometimes they were finding stone tools.
0: Wait, so how did they know they were finding tools and not just, like, rocks? What did they look like?
6: These were pieces of stone that had been taken apart, what we call napping,
1: and made into tools.
0: Napping? Like they needed to take a nap from making tools?
1: Napping is a way of shaping a stone, and it's actually spelled with K. It's not like falling asleep taking a nap. Different word. For early archaeologists, these tools were a big find and a big mystery. They knew the tools were old, but they had no idea who made them or when.
6: When the first ever Neanderthal site that we know was dug, the person who dug that up, he understood what he was looking at, but he thought that this was from people who lived just before the Romans.
0: So even though this guy was digging up a Neanderthal site, he had no idea that they'd made the tools and that they were a lot older than Romans.
1: Exactly. It took another couple of decades for scientists to put two and two together— Because Neanderthal bones and tools were usually found far apart from each other. We had the stone tools in
6: some places, we had the bones of Neanderthals in other places, but it wasn't until the end of the 19th century that those two things happened in the same site.
1: The site was a cave in Belgium, in northern Europe, and it was chock full of Neanderthal remains.
0: Sounds like an archaeological gold mine.
1: It was. They pulled out all the bones and tools that they could find lying around, and then they brought in the explosives.
0: Wait, they did what?
1: Archaeologists did not excavate in the way that we do today. Back in the 18 and 1900s, archaeologists actually used dynamite to dig out and remove things quickly. They're
6: like, no, no, it's taking too long with my pickaxe. Let's blow it up.
0: But weren't they worried about blowing up fossils or something? That's insane. I mean, not to mention blowing up themselves.
1: I know, but to their credit, the floors were really hard to dig out with a pickaxe.
6: If you ever visit a cave and you see stalagmites and stalactites hanging down, that's formed by water um, dripping down. It makes these deposits and it will form like entire floors that are like concrete hard, covering up older layers with stuff in them.
0: Oh, wow. So the Neanderthal remains were just naturally cemented over.
6: And so if they wanted to get through these flowstone floors, is what we call them, they blew them up.
0: (laughs) Yeah, okay, I can see getting tired of using a pickaxe on a concrete floor, but still, I mean, using dynamite seems really extreme, not to mention dangerous.
1: Definitely, but it was fast. You get
6: caves that were dug in 1870 or something, And they cleared it in two weeks. And now that would take decades (laughs) of work to dig that out. We would never do that.
0: Whoa. So archaeologists are really stretching out that excavation time. I bet it's because they really dig it. You get it? (laughs) It's a joke.
1: I'm sure they do dig their jobs. (laughs) And also, today's archaeologists take an entirely different approach to excavating. So the way that we do
6: archaeology now is like light years ahead in terms of the way that it was done at the very beginning of the study of Neanderthals.
0: Wait, so they're light years ahead of the old archaeologists, but still take so long to dig out a site? I don't, I don't get it. Don't you get better and faster? <laughs>
1: Well, it takes so long because archaeology is so much more detailed, especially when it comes to tools. The big difference now is that we don't
6: just collect all the big stuff, the nicely shaped tools. We're interested in all of the bits that came off during that process of production because it's been realised over many decades that you can actually reconstruct the process of making the object by refitting
1: things back together.
0: Wait, wait, so how do you refit things back together?
1: Basically, they pick up all the tiny chipped away pieces of stone from the floors of Neanderthal sites and put them back together like a jigsaw puzzle.
6: What you can do is dig up your layer, get all the stone objects and you lay them out on a table and then you basically, one by one, try and fit them back together.
0: Man, that would take a ton of patience. You're basically just fitting shards of old stone together.
1: I know it sounds extremely tedious, but it's also worth it because this process basically recreates the moment when a Neanderthal made the tool. When you fit all of those back together, you
6: can literally watch the process and the decisions that they made. Wow,
0: that sounds really cool. I mean, not that I'd want to do that, because I don't think I have the patience to put together all those pieces of rock, but it's cool that other people do.
6: What that has shown us is that Neanderthals were far, far away from just smashing stuff. You know, bash, bash, that's not what's going on.
0: So what was going on? How did they make those tools?
6: They had many different really specific systematic ways of taking stone apart in some cases we can watch them switch between one method and another on the same block of stone as they encounter a problem so they start off doing it one way and they're like oh no it's not going well i'm going to switch to this other method
0: wow so it's like we can read the thoughts of a neanderthal
1: i know it's so awesome and that's what those early archaeologists miss by only seeing the big finish tools and blowing the place up <laughs> So
6: what we can see by keeping all the stuff is so much richer than what we would have learned if we had only kept the finished article.
0: OK, so that's stone tools. But what about the like wooden tools and the sharpened sticks Leo
1: asked about? Yeah, those get a deep look, too. We basically just study
6: everything to the max. So, you know, we will zoom in and we can identify the different
1: species of wood they can even see what parts of the tree Neanderthals made the tools from. They are choosing the parts of the tree
6: that are the strongest. They're carving them in a way that's not straight down the branch, but off at an angle, and that makes it stronger too. When it sort of gets you know, stuck in an animal, it's not
1: going to shatter.
0: All right, so they weren't just like pulling down random branches and then making them pointy and calling them spears. <laughs>
1: Exactly. The materials were carefully chosen and the tools were well constructed. So where Leo was
6: talking about wooden spears and things like this, what we do know is that Neanderthals sometimes made what we call composite tools. So that just means tools made of more than one
1: part. Archaeologists think these parts might have been bound together by plants or animal tissue. Those haven't been preserved, but what has been bound is Neanderthal glue.
0: Wait, glue? Like Elmer's from the bottle?
1: Not from the bottle. (laughs) We can see that they
6: made glues. So little lumps of stuff, just little smears that are stuck on stone tools.
0: That's amazing. I I mean, I don't know how to make glue. So how did they... (laughs)
1: Well, archaeologists analyzed the chemicals in those little lumps and smears and discovered it used to be very sticky. We can say that Neanderthals knew how to make glue from birch
6: bark, which requires cooking it basically for a considerable amount of time.
0: So, wow. I mean, you'd have to have a lot of patience to make this stuff, but honestly, not as much as putting together a stone tool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) For sure and Neanderthals were making other tools that weren't for hunting. There are other wooden objects as well,
6: digging sticks, which may not sound as exciting as spears, but actually they are super important for everyday life.
0: So wait, let me guess, a digging stick is a stick that you use to dig?
1: You are correct. Neanderthals wouldn't dig with any old stick. They made special ones for that. Certainly, what we see is even when they're making digging sticks, they make the same
6: really careful choices about the kind of tree and how they actually make that tool. So sometimes they use very strong, hard woods, which are really difficult to carve, and then they will use fire to help them soften the wood up and actually
1: carve that off.
0: I can almost see the Neanderthals around the fire, like just boiling glue, softening sticks.
1: Having a good time.
0: (laughs) Hanging out.
1: (laughs) we can actually know that they did these things. These tools really give us a picture into the past.
0: But Leo mentioned studying other living species with similar brain sizes to find out how Neanderthals might have made tools. So is that a thing?
6: Yeah, this was a really cool thing that Leo said because it is
1: really close to what we do and the way that we've worked over decades. Archaeologists and primatologists, or people who study primates, have observed other primates like chimps and bonobos making tools in the wild, but they lack some important skills. They don't
6: seem to have the same understanding of geometry in order to be able to come anywhere near to the more complicated methods of making stone tools that Neanderthals had mastered.
1: Neanderthal tools show us that Neanderthals were more advanced than we often give them credit for. And we know that thanks to slow, careful archaeology.
6: This is what's really fascinating about how modern archaeology works that we apply our clever scientific techniques, and sometimes we find things that are completely unexpected and they open up a complete other window onto what Neanderthals were up to that we would
1: never have known before.
0: So, no more blowing up caves, even though it was probably cool to watch.
1: Exactly. What's hiding in the dirt has showed us that Neanderthals are more like humans than we thought. I would say that they
6: are another kind of human. They're another way of being a human. They were different in some ways, but there's so much more shared between us than what makes us different.
0: Wow, it looks like our cave adventure has come to an end. Thank you for joining me on the last tumble road trip of the summer. Lindsay and I will be back on September 15th for the start of season 9. In the meantime, you can pledge just $1 a month on Patreon or Spotify for our collection of bonus episodes. Thanks to all the scientists we met on this road trip. Sarah Robertson-Lentz is our editor and made all the episode art. Lindsay Patterson wrote the original episodes. Elliot Hijaj wrote the interludes and produced this road trip episode. And I'm Marshall Escamilla, and I made all the music you heard. Tumble is a production of Tumble Media. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more stories of science discovery. Thanks so much for listening to that episode. And now that it's over, we've got some birthday shout-outs to give to our supporters on Patreon. Happy birthday to Pierce on September 9th. Welcome to your teen years, Pierce. Your family loves you. Finnegan, happy birthday on September 13th. Your family loves you very much. And a happy birthday on September 14th to Sweet Olive. Thanks to all of you and to everyone who supports Tumble on Patreon. If you want to get a birthday shout out of your own like these fine folks, simply support Tumble on Patreon at the $5 level or higher by going to patreon.com slash tumblepodcast. Once again, that's patreon.com tumblepodcast.